Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wiltron. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff. We're talking to Todd Green, the founder and CEO of PubNub. They do all kinds of real-time messaging for things like Internet of Things devices, consumer electronics, and they manage 3 million real-time messages per second on 100 million devices a month. That's pretty impressive. It's crazy impressive. They built a really interesting solution for IoT developers and for uh, IoT customers, although they don't know they're using PubNub. (laughs) Uh, They just know that they're getting their real-time messages. And that's the important thing. And we talked to Todd and we learned some really cool stuff about what they do. All right. So, Todd, I think before we get into talking about PubNub, we'd like to hear a little bit about your background and the path that you took to get here. Yeah, that's a long story. So (laughs) (laughs) that's okay. Maybe the short version. I'll try to give you the short version. You know, I've been involved in Internet businesses since uh, I guess it's 96. I left Pricewaterhouse in in the early mid mid 90s to join a a small company at the time that was later renamed to NetDynamics, which was an infrastructure company back when the websites were brochureware and browsers were being used to, to browse brochures, basically. And we were one of the first people to say, hey, you know, you can scalably connect back-end systems like databases and enterprise systems to the web and, and build dynamic websites and, and, and applications on the web. And I've sort of been, been, been hooked ever since. So I, I've had jobs in engineering, I've had jobs in, in product management, jobs in professional services, kind of across the board in marketing. So uh, in, in various companies, I, I went from there to, to that company was sold to Sun Microsystems in 98. We all did okay from that. And then I started my own company in 99 called Cascade Works. I was a CTO of that company. It was more of an enterprise SaaS company before the term SaaS was invented. And then uh, we called it ASP back then. But anyway, that company was sold in 2003. I went into the B2C space a little bit later and started a company there. And then eventually, there's a longer story there, but that turned into a company that was called Loyalize most recently that allowed people to play along with second screen devices uh, with TV shows. And that, that's what got me into kind of both embedded devices and then real-time connectivity to those devices because in order to create these experiences that consumers could play along with television sets, there were all these really interesting technical challenges that you had to do, right? You had to somehow synchronize, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with a TV set with something happening live on TV. And there was all much creative challenges, right? Which was how do you create experiences that take advantage of having all of these devices linked together as people linked together in real time. So we had kind of a creative challenge and a technical challenge. Now, the technical side, by that point, I'd already started PubNub as a side project with, uh, with a friend, oh. a previous coworker, And so that was building up. And so we sort of used PubNub as our, as our secret sauce to make Loyalize work. Loyalize got a lot of buzz um, as PubNub was growing. We were, I think we were voted by Forbes or chosen by Forbes, one of the four hot companies of the year in that space. And eventually we were sold to the owner of American Idol at the end of 2011. <laughs> wow. And that was a great run because the month that that company was acquired was the same month I, I raised a Series A fi- fundraising for PubNub. And funny story, I was unemployed for exactly seven minutes because the, the transaction closed at 11.53 p.m. on December 31st, 2011. And January 1st, I was employed by PubNub. And so that's the short version. Well, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> so you were your own customer. You, were, you got to see that from both sides at the same time, which I think is pretty incredible. It was actually great because it helped with you know some I mean not not most or all but some of mm-hmm. some of the pains and ideas that we that we saw as a customer of PubNub at Loyalize right and we were able to see where some of the pain points were even if we were using PubNub in some capacity you know gosh it would be so much better if only it did X Y or Z when you were at Loyalize and you were working on on the genesis of what would become PubNub what was the thing that you solved that you banged your head on for a long time and when you solved it you were just thrilled. 
Well, actually, you know, PubNub was started a year before Loyalize, and it was actually solving a set of problems that I had had in various both companies and just sort of side projects I had played around with. And then I think the genius of PubNub, which I'll, I'll give credit to my co-founder for really, was was being able to see that all of these companies with disparate problems really could be solved with this one solution. The challenges I ran into, you know, this is going back to 2004, 2005, were just a subset of the challenges that he foresaw in this space. And, and the challenges I ran into was on the side, I, I didn't know much about social software at the time, but MySpace was taking off. And I was really frustrated by the fact that all of these social ideas, all these B2C ideas were still very non-real time. They were very single user. I'm sitting there, I'm sharing content, but someone sees it a minute or an hour or a day later. I was always frustrated by the fact that the internet allows me to be geeky about it. I can send a packet of data to you, to anyone in a quarter of a second or less. And why is it that, you know, we've got some applications like Skype we're using now, as well as you know, WebEx or World of Warcraft or going back to the days of something called PointCast, which was one of the first kind of push, takes advantage of low latency. But, but except for these sort of expensive siloed applications, expensive to maintain and operate, you know, almost everything else was being done in this sort of non-real-time asynchronous way. And that frustrated me. So I built a fun little social game on the side. I think it was called like Deface Bush. It was the time during the Bush re-election. Uh-huh. We, created a, we created a grid over Bush's face. And if you were Democrat, you could drag blue tiles. If you Republican, you could drag red tiles, like Scrabble tiles, and, and, and leave messages. And you could see it in real time. So you could watch other people drag the tiles. And you could drag your own tiles and spell things out. And then every five minutes, I think it would clear the board. And you know, the challenge was like, that was cool, but it was very hard to scale that. And it's, gosh, you know, why is it that I want to, I want to build this application? But the infrastructure side is to do this in real time is really tough. You know, and once you get above 10, 15, 20 users. And that was all pre-cloud, right? Yeah, exactly. And then I did the same thing for a game I built that we never really launched called iChallenge, which was one of the first iPhone games where the idea was you could post a challenge like, you know, find me a picture of the best sports car. And then that challenge would be live for five minutes and people could upload pictures. And in real time, you could vote to see which was the best picture, the best challenge you had posted. Again, you know, we got stymied with the real-time stuff. Like, you know, I spent 80% of the time on the real-time infrastructure and 20% on the game, which is why I never really got the game out the door because it was a side project. And then, you know, we started to see this pattern across not just social applications, but business applications that wanted to create real-time collaboration. And then, you know, opening it up to embedded devices, where even before IoT became a popular buzzword, there have been a need to create connectivity and securely and quickly be able to send data bi-directionally to devices. And it turned out, you know, fast-forwarding to today that the PubNub data stream network or the concept of a data stream network in general has been applied now to really hundreds of different industries. And it turns out that all of their various problems, whether it's a multiplayer game or a home automation system or a connected car, tend to leverage the same contextual network. It's a network that knows something about the data so it can do smart things with it and deliver it in real time. It definitely seems that you have a very strong following of a lot of developers that are using PubNub to kind of handle the beast of their development project so that they can focus on the more creative side and the and the focus. Have you seen as you've moved from Loyalize to PubNub that it was started mostly with the entertainment, the social TV, mobile and web application areas that followed with PubNub first and then kind of a larger audience? Or was it once that developers kind of figured out that the base of PubNub is so universal that they could leverage that across a multitude of different projects? It's an interesting question. I mean, there's just two facets to that question, which is, you know, a go-to-market strategy. In other words, do you go out and and specifically target industries or do you provide more of an evangelism-based approach to getting awareness among a wide swath of developers and letting them sort of find the best application? And then, you know, how we grew in each individual vertical. So, you know, we decided to take a non-enterprise sales approach. We decided to create a relatively transparent pricing model 
that was affordable and it scaled with a customer. Because we believed that the roadblock for most people delivering connectivity types of real-time connectivity applications, the roadblock was ge- was generally around coordination costs, the friction, the, the initial investment in time and money you have to make to get things to market. And so if we could reduce that for customers and let them try lots of things on our platform and really only pay us significant money when their applications of any sort were successful, that would be a better way to, to, to grow the space. And that's played out very well for us. So we've taken this very developer evangelist kind of strategy we make it you know, free to try out our application. We make 60 SDKs open source and downloadable. So whether you're trying something in Erlang and iOS and pick 32 chips at land, you know, you name it, we've got some SDK for you. So that's worked out really well from an evangelism strategy. And then in terms of how it grew, it was interesting. It's more of more percentages than one versus the other. There was definitely an initial early, early adoption among smaller companies who didn't know PubNub. So they were willing to take higher risk before we were well established. And many of those, because of the era 2009, 2010, were in the social space. But surprisingly, pretty quickly, we had people doing a lot of telephony applications. And we now power the world's second and third largest voice over IP applications in the world. There are a host of different industries, even early on, prior to raising our first round of financing, that went beyond where we thought we would play. So, you know, even we, we started to see embedded device things happening much earlier than probably we expected. Is that something that you saw growing as fast as you saw, or were you kind of surprised by it? And then one day just turned around and said, whoa, this whole M2M thing is becoming like an IoT thing, and we have to get on that. (laughs) It's a good question. One of the side effects of making your business as easy to sign up and use as we did is a lot of times you don't know what your network is being used for. We very quickly were at 50 customers and 150 transactions a second before we knew what was happening. Wow. And we didn't know, you know, what 40 of those 50 customers were doing. You know, we didn't know why we're getting 100 transactions a second. And it took us a long time. It took us a different sort of customer engagement strategy, implicit ways of engaging with those customers to sort of figure that out. So we surprisingly didn't know for a long time. You know, fast forward today, we now, you know, averaging about 60,000 transactions a second through our network. And we're on 1,000 customers. So it's it's grown quite a bit. And, and as part of that, I think we're much better now at, at knowing what the use cases are. But back then, we really didn't know. And so... It's even today hard to say where we were being used, for example. There, there were more multiplayer games than we thought, but then again, it turned out to be a, a smaller minority overall of the business. And there were some business collaboration things happening um, and, some, like I said, some embedded advice, but it was hard. And financial streaming of some really, a really broad set of use cases. Yeah, we noticed on uh, Mount Gox is using it and uh, Revolve, Insteon. You've, you've got quite a, a, a breadth of customers leveraging what you've got there. Mount Gox, if you uh, didn't follow the news, was, I guess, generally arrested. They were not basically tracking their transactions well enough. So while we helped the streaming of the Bitcoin prices on their network, what they weren't doing was good auditing of their own database. And so they ended up losing, I think, about $500 million worth of people's money, which, which was a bummer for us because we lost a nice customer, but I think a much bigger bummer for their customers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Happily, your other customers all look solid. <laughs> they're, they're a pretty impressive roster, as Andrea said. No, absolutely. And, and it's really interesting. I think the, the approach of a developer evangelist approach has worked out well for us because we've been brought into companies like Insteon and Logitech where, you know, we didn't do a traditional, you know, knock on the door enterprise sales strategy, but we just provided a very easy ramp and, and kind of used somewhat of a Darwinian approach. You know, hey, if you guys have a, a better, more cost effective, more reliable solution, go with it. If not, you know, let's talk about PubNub. And I think in the vast majority of cases, we, we tend to win that argument. Do you know how they learned about you? Well, we have a, a very effective evangelist group, and we define evangelists as senior technical people who create a lot of technical content that's meant for distribution. 
So we write uh, sometimes as many as eight blog posts a week, and those blog posts get syndicated off in other places. And they are not just sort of fluffy blog posts, but they have code samples. They sometimes provide frameworks and demos. And so that's typically how, how a lot of our uh, customers find out about us initially is through some content they've stumbled upon. And then they connect the dots between something they have, maybe even they found in their, in their personal sort of, you know, after hours life, some side project they're doing, coming back to the office the next day and saying, you know, I just discovered something that worked really well here at this company. That's great. We've been noticing recently that IoT is starting to get a lot of traction. It's becoming a really nifty buzzword. But for companies like yours that have been involved with these other major innovators in that space for a while, where do you see it going now that it's starting to get some real attention? So, you know, there's a lot of noise in IoT now, right? Because it's at the top of that, you know, hype cycle. Right. And I always question if it even exists truly as a category or if it's more of an umbrella for analysts to talk about a lot of categories, right? Because the needs of connected cars and home automation are somewhat different, for example, to, a, you know, 20 IoT subcategories. I'll tell you what, you know, what we're seeing being both the vendor to many IoT companies and also attending a lot of these IoT conferences and talking to a lot of analysts. You know, I see a lot of IoT platforms that are being launched. I see a lot of IoT initiatives. And I go to these keynotes and the diagrams almost look exactly the same. You know, the diagrams are these little boxes at the top of the screen of the slide which represent some kind of connected devices, you know, light bulbs, connected cars, you name it, right? Toasters. Exactly, toasters, you know, or even something more vertical like a blood pressure monitor device or glucose monitor device, something like that, or a host of these. Some lines, and those lines go to some fluffy cloud-looking thing. And the fluffy cloud-looking thing always either says cloud, or it says internet, or if they're really old school, it says LAN, right? (laughs) And then coming out of the bottom of that cloud are some more lines, and then some, some bigger boxes, and those represent the servers that's going to do stuff. And that kind of is a big data story. We're going to, you know, we're going to aggregate the data. We're going to do reporting analytics. We're going to integrate it to your ERP systems. And those are kind of the IoT platforms, right? We're going to take that data. We're going to trigger off of it. We're going to provide some analytics on it and maybe do some integration. So that's kind of the, that diagram. It always looks pretty much the same. The words are sometimes different on it. When I look at PubNub, we're simply the lines on that diagram. We're agnostic to... You know, whether you've got a solution taking that data, processing it in, in a cloud, whether you are moving that data back to your own network, to back to your own data centers and doing something with it, or whether the, the data and those lines are flowing up to the embedded devices or down from those embedded devices down to servers, or whether you're flowing between those devices. So, you know, we, we see ourselves playing very well in the space because we're pretty agnostic to the devices and we're pretty agnostic to the servers. What we're saying is... You know, Internet of Things means Internet, and anything connected to the Internet has some, some very specific challenges. And those challenges being security, first and foremost. It's hard enough, and there's a multi-billion dollar industry around securing the ports on your corporate firewall. Imagine now having a port open on every single connected device. Well, that's definitely one of the trends that we've been seeing in a lot of the articles is watch out, the hackers are going to get your fridge, and they're going to take over your light bulbs and your car. Pat, your cat's going to come in your house and scan your networks and it's all over, right? Yep, that's it. But it is true. I mean, you know, there's obviously hype around it, but, you know, my understanding is that the famous target breach last year, that was through an embedded device that was through the air conditioning system. Yeah, apparently the Home Depot is through the self-scanners, they think so far. No, exactly. So there's a, there's a true and real security concern. There is a concern around power drain. There is a concern around bi-directional communication, you know, just being able to move data reliably back and forth. And, and you, you don't get all that stuff and more just with the internet. The internet doesn't solve those problems. The internet's simply this pseudo fault tolerant way to send packets back and forth, but it's even flossy, right? So we found a real, uh, a, a really great opportunity in providing the things that we do, which is, 
you know, very, very secure communication that doesn't take a lot of engineering to get working. High-speed communication. In some cases, high-speed is important. In some cases, it's not. But in either way, it's nice to have. And then the ability to do other things like detect. This is another big thing. Are these devices online? And I want to know immediately when they go offline. You know, so, so presence detection. These are like these core things that you sort of think the Internet gives you that it doesn't. And so, you know, you can apply the needs for that across everything from, you know, home security systems to a connected car going through a tunnel. You know, when you may dispatch a ride request to a taxi and the taxi's not connected, there's all of these use cases for that that we provided at, at PubNub. And then, you know, we're pretty agnostic to, to the rest of the world, which, you know, is going through, as I'm sure you've seen, a very fast iterations and models around um, whether, whether these devices connect directly, whether they go through a hub, whether you're connected to a cloud service. You, there's just so many things happening around that. But the one, the one constant seems to be, I need secure, reliable communication. And I need to know when these devices are there and when they're not there. And that, that seems to be a place where we've been working really well. Definitely. Especially, I was really enjoying looking into the connected car areas when it seems like every week there's a new service like Lyft or Get Taxi or Uber or whatever. And they all have the, you know, you've got to track the car and it's some sort of a geofencing. So only cars that are close by are notified that you need them. And it seemed like PubNub was, was really useful for these types of use cases. Yeah, it's one of those things where we've almost become the de facto network now for communication in the connected car space. And most of that was organic growth, uh, sort of word of mouth, and, and then just people adopting us. And so if you look at, there's really five things that those guys are, are trying to solve, right? It's, you know, reliable two-way connectivity. If I dispatch a, a ride request to a driver, you know, it better get there, even if the guy happens to be swapping cell towers or switching from 3G to Edge or to, you know, LTE. Secure, again, is the big thing. You know, in many cases, power drain becomes an issue if, if you want to track these cars, even if they're offline. And then just doing it in a scalable and low bandwidth way. You know, we've been, we've been delivering that now to, to just most of the connected car companies. The new and hip startups are always tend to embrace this very well. But I noticed that Ford is potentially a customer of yours as well. How do you see with the kind of older traditional car companies adopting and starting to understand what it means to leverage something like this? With Ford's case, we actually stumbled upon them by winning a, a hackathon that they sort of, one of our guys actually just decided to go to on his own accord. And what came out of that was, uh, we were, I think, the only people that had integrated, you know, real-time connectivity right inside the Ford Sync platform in the dash, which they then sent us a Ford Sync dash we have sitting here on our desk. And it ties into the strategy Ford and others are taking. There's a tension between wanting to provide an open API so developers can can build applications against those car platforms with having the safety and security issues of not wanting to distract the driver or be liable for that. So, you know, a very kind of tightly curated app store model for the cars. People like BMW and Ford are hovering between, which is... How much openness and what risk do we take by allowing third parties to integrate with the car itself? That's one piece of it, which is kind of the third party model. And then I think more generally, I've had a number of conversations with car companies now. They're all moving to a version 2.0 of a connected car world where they want to be streaming telematics data back to their own servers for data analysis. And they want to provide infotainment services back to the driver. And if you think about how that works today... For example, products where, say, you can uh, either make a phone call or use an app on your phone, and it opens the locks on your car door. Today, that's done through SMS. And the challenge with that is it's a known security hole. Every car has a secret phone number. And if I have that SMS phone number and I know the format of the SMS message, I can walk around all day long in a parking lot opening up car doors. And they don't, you know, I think most car manufacturers will only tell you this in private over a beer, but it's the case. And so 
<laughs> we've been having some pretty um, fruitful conversations recently in that space because, you know, with PubNub, we're solving both the battery drain issues of keeping an always-on connection that happens to be very highly secure. So there's none of that, uh, hey, I know the SMS phone number of the car, I'm going to pop the doors open. As these car companies look for their next generation connected communication layer, there's a real opportunity for PubNub. Do you feel like when you start having these conversations that the majority of it is actually just educating potential customers on the potential of this and explaining why there's this risk and why that they might need to start considering a different option? It's interesting. The market is moving from an educational market to more of a broader adoption market. It is moving at a different pace depending on the industry. We're seeing it moving faster with connected home. You know, that's really changed over the last six months from an educational market to an, a, a broad adoption market. I think connected cars from the, obviously, as you would expect with the major car manufacturers, that's going to take longer. And in general, embedded device manufacturers are a little bit more conservative on sort of these technologies and just not fully being software uh, people. I think we're still in an education market. But then if you cut across to things like things outside of IoT for us, you know, business collaboration, social apps, I mean, those are, those are way past the education phase and then much more of the broad adoption market. I think we've been seeing a lot of that as well as things in particular, they, people want to see that it's smarter, but they're not quite sure how to define what a smarter car is or a smarter toaster or home automation. It seems to come in short spurts. You have certain people that can completely grasp how to leverage low bandwidth and security and presence detection in a way that makes it useful, but a lot of companies actually still quite aren't sure what to make of it. I think we all see that it's got a lot of potential in the future to kind of figure out how to make it all work once you have a really strong base to kind of trust. I like that you guys provide this core because it strikes me that the problem with messaging is that it probably seems really simple until you have actually done it at scale and done it in near real time. And so I imagine a lot of this is the fact that you guys open your SDK so anybody can try it. I imagine is when that education process begins for a lot of people. The fact that they can get started with you quickly is a great benefit for you because the second they start to like re-implement it, it's like, oh, we'll just do this part later ourselves. I imagine they feel a lot of pain at that point. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, and I, I want to address something Andreas said earlier, but just to address what you said, which is absolutely true. We have the hardest time selling to a three-person company that's planning to be the next Facebook or the next Apple. Because their feedback is, no, 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 we're going to do this all ourselves. And then that's easy stuff, right? If they start to gain success, more often than not, they come back to us and they say, you know, that wasn't so easy and we're not getting the reliability we need and we want to look at PubNub again. Where we have much less friction, ironically, is the larger the company. You know, Coca-Cola out of the IoT space was very fast to adopt PubNub because they had done things at scale before and seen how hard it was. So that worked out really well. And, and as, as the market moves from an educational market to a market where it's kind of understood that something like a data stream network is needed, that friction point's going away as well. I sort of equate it to a couple of patterns, right? Going back to the 80s, I'm not that old yet. I wasn't actually in the industry then. But I know there were a lot of conversations, even going into the mid-90s, of companies saying, well, we can either use a relational database or build one ourselves. Now you would pretty much fire any architect who said that, right? It's like, you're not going to build your own relational database. There's lots of them out there. And, and the same thing happened when I was in the app server world. Back in the NetDynamics days, I used to pitch NetDynamics to people. And we used this brand new programming language no one had ever heard of called Java. Back then, you know, it was always one of those, I can do this myself better, faster. But nowadays, no one does. People use a LAMP stack. They use a Java stack. They use whatever stack, but they don't go build these things themselves. And, and I think we're seeing the same thing happening on, on the data stream network side. 
So specifically with like home automation, have you found any particular challenges when you start getting multiple things on your home network? The connected car has its own challenges, but the home also has its challenges, especially as the the battle continues, it seems, with Google purchasing Nest and kind of deciding the language and making it more a ubiquitous experience in the home. Have you seen any challenges as that starts to grow? We've been solving a lot of challenges there. Something that really surprised me, it shouldn't have surprised me, but one of our home automation customers has a team of 25 phone support people. And what those phone support people do is spend upwards of 10 to 20 minutes per customer when a customer purchases their home automation suite. And they explain to that customer how to open up ports on the home firewall so that you can control your home from outside your home LAN. With PubNub, that's gone away. In fact, the CEO of the company was telling me disappointingly, it's no longer fun to set up this home emission stuff that we built because now you just plug it in and it works. <laughs> um, oh, that sucks. I hate when that happens. <laughs> so and that, that, exactly, and that translates to, to a real dollar amount, right? If you've got a, a support team and a frustration from a customer perspective, if you have to sit there and futz with your router because your home router, you know, I think most consumers don't have the faintest idea how to do that. No. That creates a huge friction point to deploying these things. Well, and returns. I can't imagine the percentage of returns that you help them save. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then that's just, you know, within one vendor. But then one of our home automation partners is a company called Revolve. And, you know, they've provided a hub model of being able to connect to many different home automation vendors. So you can use, you know, a light bulb from Philips, but you can use, a, you know, an Insteon product and a Logitech product, and they can all work through kind of a Revolve singular hub. And that very much fits in our model. And one of the other problems we're trying to solve is a ubiquity of connectivity, is what I like to say. So the way to think about that is, with PubNub, not only can you easily connect devices together, communicate, but you can very easily syndicate those streams. So now you can create streams of home automation data to your question and then provide access to other devices who may not even be from the same vendor on specific PubNub channels. And you give them access tokens and now they can integrate with that data. And so you know, we've provided a nice integration solution for not just one kind of devices to talk to each other, but across many different vendors. Yeah, I really like that. One of my particular little interests in home automation is specifically when you have older adults that are living on their own and don't want to go live in a community or in a home or anything. They want to still have their independence as much as possible, but their family's concerned. And it's still a little slow for my preference, but something like that needs to be so easy to set up so that everything in the home is easily connected. So they're caregivers can monitor and make sure that they're still doing okay and everything's going well at home between are they eating properly and temperature in the house is where it should be for who they are. And that in particular, I think is something I'd love to see where it's just intuitive. You just come home and everything magically connects, but it's still secure. So there's no concerns and and things just kind of work (laughs) the way we, we kind of all expect them to now. And that, you know, we're very close to that, right? I mean, it, it should get to the point where you buy something off the shelf at Best Buy, you order it off of Amazon, you bring it home, you press a button on your router, you press a button on the device you just bought, and that's it. You're done. Yep. And that stuff is getting there, right? Because now one of our customers is burning PubNub into the firmware at the factory in China. They're burning in unique IDs into the factory. So you bring that device home and you've already got a serial number that gets broadcasted to the home hub or to the, to the server as soon as it hits our network. And very quickly, you've got that sort of auto-config devices. And it also has a side effect of being secure, right? You don't have this port open now that's, you know, through your home firewall that any, any hacker could port scan and get into. Definitely. And, you know, back to something you said earlier about just more broadly around IoT, in any category within IoT, there still needs to be a killer app. And I think, you know, going back to the connected car space, there are a lot of ideas for killer apps. It's very hard 
to get those killer apps inside cars. Where right now, one of the killer apps is Pandora. So a lot of cars are now shipping with Pandora on the dashboard. But there's a lot of interesting things, but a lot of friction points for getting those adopted. So when, when we look across where PubNub plays in IoT, we really look to say, can we help grow a killer app? And if we don't see a killer app in the space, I mean, we, we don't throw a lot of calories behind helping that space because, you know, so no one's figured it out yet. No one's figured out what the killer app is in that IoT vertical. Throughout our podcast, we've defined Internet of Things as things that connect, compute, and communicate. So clearly the biggest part of the cool new idea is the computing part. And then the connecting and communicating, it seems like a lot of companies could rely on something like PubNub to do that so that they can focus on creating an amazing user experience or having it really compute really well. Yeah, it's not really an Internet of Thing unless it really is connecting, first of all. Though you'd be surprised at how many devices, you know, they're they're in this umbrella now aren't really IoT. They're sort of everyone's jumping on the bandwagon for for the category. Yeah. So let me just understand again your category. You're saying connect, compute, and what was the third one? Communicate. Yeah, we have a little internal framework that we like to use when talking about Internet of Things stuff. We like to qualify them, just like you said, because there's far too many things that are jumping in, claiming they're part of IoT, but... We don't really think they are. (laughs) We had to draw a line somewhere. It's more of a framework just for us. Just like you you have that uh, great framework for the five challenges around the Internet of Things that you address specifically with PubNub. We use that to determine whether it's something we should talk about on this podcast. Because as you said, everything and everyone is claiming to have an Internet of Things solution. So that's how we decide. Our definition is that it, it must connect, it must communicate, and it must compute. And the connecting is more things like RF, other protocols. The communicating is more amongst kind of higher level things, higher level distillations of data, either to other devices or to humans. So you take in all this sensor data, computation happens, it turns the sensor data into something meaningful. And then at that point, the actual communication starts either to other devices or to other humans through things like PubNub. I like the way you're thinking about it. And, and it actually ties really well to not only what we're delivering today, but I'll give you a little taste of kind of how we think about our roadmap. Oh, please. Obviously, today we're very good at connecting and communicating. That's what people use PubNub for. And we didn't talk too much about how we solve the security thing. Security is a big umbrella in itself, sort of like IoT, right? It means a lot of things to a lot of people. In our world, we do it in two really important ways. One is we provide a lot of layers of data encryption including AES, where we don't hold the keys. And so, you know, even if we get subpoenaed or anything else, we don't know what the data says. The, the keys are held by the customer who uses PubNub, not by us, the vendor. The other way we solve security is around no open ports on the device. Every connection starts as an outbound connection. So these devices are programmed only to reach out and connect to the PubNub point of presence that they're closest to. And then we can stream data back down that connection. And so there's, there's literally that whole attack vector for hackers scanning IP addresses, scanning ports goes away. Those devices can really appear as if they're not even on the network. Great. And yet the connection always starts as an outbound. In terms of the compute, that really just ties right to our, our roadmap. So the way we think about the needs of IoT, you know, going back to that IoT platform diagram that I, that I keep seeing in keynotes, people are still thinking about IoT platforms as these big monolithic servers doing big data computation. But the reality is, as more and more devices are out there, and as more of them are generating more data, it doesn't make sense to stream all this raw data down to some servers which are going to crunch it all on some behemoth scale. And so then a lot of people talk about computing at the edge where the devices themselves can do some smart filtering and aggregation of data before they send it. But the problem with that is a lot of times you need to do something about the other devices in the network before you can be smart about it. And so we really see a lot of the computation happening in the network itself. 
And so if you look at PubNub today being a very secure way of communicating and a secure way of connecting, mm-hmm. we're starting to provide services whereby you can do some computation in the network itself. I think you're absolutely right. I think the only way to make the things do what we need them to do without asking too much of them is, is to do exactly that. That's really exciting. That's kind of ties right to why we call it a data stream network, because unlike any network that's just sending packets, it doesn't really know one packet's a Skype packet, the next packet's a image packet, third packet's a web page packet. We know about these messages going through our network, and because we know something about them, even though you may encrypt the body so we can't look at the body of the message, we tell you for some, if you want us to work on that packet or make smart routing decisions based on that message, then you hang data off the edge of that we call it the envelope. So the packet itself may be encrypted, but maybe you want us to do some computation or filtering based on the gender, based on the location, based on you know the temperature reading off the device, whatever it is that you that you or set sets of data that you want us to make business. You you hang that off of the message envelope. So you're sending all this encrypted data, but you're 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 hanging off of it all this data that's only encrypted through SSL. So it's encrypted from the device to our network, but once it's inside our private network, we route it to where it needs to go. We make smart computation and filtering decisions on that. That's really, I think, the exciting part because you know, the idea of having a single monolithic big data system that's going to take all the raw data and do something to it, it's not going to do it in real time. It's not going to give you kind of the, the ability to react in real time on all of that data. And frankly, you probably don't need all of that data. And so being able to, to have, say, machines you know, voting on, on temperature averages and things like that and being able to aggregate that as it's flowing through the network, that's really, I think, where we're going to be adding even more value to the network. And the nice thing is when you're using PubNub already for the communication and for the connectivity piece, it's a very easy add-on to flip a switch, and all of a sudden we're doing smarter things to your data. So it's a nice way to sort of increase the use of PubNub in, in a way that doesn't involve a huge amount of uh, friction for the customer. So it's, it's interesting because you talk about PubNub as a network, and I assume that means it, it's distributed with nodes all over the world to help guarantee extremely fast response time. Then would the computation also be distributed amongst all of your nodes, and could they actually happen on the device itself, potentially? Absolutely. So, so this is a really important thing to realize about PubNub, and this is where we actually, you know, have a lot of core intellectual properties. We've always thought about this as a network problem. And so we took the models that you see from like the CDN world, like an Akamai, but we don't compete with them at all. But we've thought about communication in that realm. So when you're publishing a piece of data into our network, maybe it's a temperature reading from a sensor, maybe it's a car dispatch message or lat long, whatever that message is, we bring that into our network and then we immediately replicate it to all the points of presence around the globe. Now we can do smart replication too. If it's personal identifiable information, we can keep it out of the EU for legislative reasons. We can keep data inside the EU for other legislative reasons, but only in Europe. So we can do smart about how we replicate. And that's very easy for us to set up on a per customer basis. And then devices that are listening for that data simply subscribe onto a channel. And when they, when they issue that one line of code, pubnub.subscribe, what's happening under the covers is an open network connection is made between the device and the geographically closest point of presence. So let's say I'm publishing here in California, we're hitting one of our California data centers, and I may be subscribing in Japan, so it's hitting our Tokyo data center, and someone else is subscribing on the same channel in Brazil, so it's hitting our Sao Paulo point of presence. What happens is that data immediately replicates through high-speed lines between our California point of presence, Tokyo, and Sao Paulo, and then any devices listening on that channel will receive it. So you've got this bi-directional publishing and subscribing mechanism which works at, at huge scale. And what's nice about it is we cache all of the data in all of the points of presence. And so if, for example, major earthquake, California falls into the ocean, all of the devices subscribed to California, those connections immediately fail over to the next geographically closest data center. And better, all of the data 
that they missed while they filled over is waiting for them in cache to get gzip bundled up and squirted down to the device or the server. Wow. And so that's why we're really the only company in the cloud offering five nines SLAs, meaning if we're down for more than something like six seconds a month, you know, we've breached our SLA. Are you into medical? And if so, do you have special kind of solutions for that space? I don't know if we've announced any yet, but I know we've got customers in the med device space. And because of the encryption that we offer, we're, we're kind of in the checkbox on the HIPAA compliant side. So we're able to offer both in the kind of three areas that are really focused on, on security, medical, financial, and then governmental. So various governments, you know, can use PubNub in a way that allows them to encrypt data that to meet, meet their, their needs around encryption to make sure the data doesn't get lost. And so absolutely, there, there's a HIPAA compliant angle to what we're doing as well. I think that's definitely the space that you can definitely see that everyone's ears have perked in those industries, that they're curious and they're interested in, and they know that this is definitely the right way to go. But everyone is very nervous uh, constantly. Well, so. especially now that with like the Apple Watch, it's like, you've got your medical in my consumer. No, you've got your consumer in my medical. <laughs> right. You know, it's all it's all kind of an interesting mess. Yeah. Very broadly, we think of the world as a set of data streams, not just real-time streams of data that has to get there in a quarter of a second, which is what we guarantee, but long-lived data streams like your medical information. You know, if you think about that, it's a stream of data that starts when you're born and basically gets added to every time you have any kind of medical doctor's appointment or a lab or anything else. And that becomes a stream of data that you want to you know, do the kinds of things that we allow. You want to be able to store that data, retrieve it at any time in a secure way. You want to be able to give access privileges for people to maybe just write to your stream. Maybe it's a lab writing to that stream. Maybe it's an app that's going to do something with it to read from that stream. Maybe it's a doctor that can read and write. We provide those atomic or those, those sort of thing. And it's like, wow, everything I needed to do was there. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com and email us at podcast at farstuff.com. We'd like to thank PubNub and Todd Green. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.